0: Becoming Heartstrong, the series that we're in. Today's scripture and message is very culturally appropriate. Uh, we're still in Corinthians. Uh, we're in the we're in the second letter that we have recorded in Corinthians. Um, as a refresher, and maybe it'll be new to you, but as a refresher for some of us, we talked about this a, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Paul wrote four letters to the church in Corinth and uh, the surrounding area that it is in. We have letters, number two and number four, that are actually in the Bible. He had started the church there uh, by spending about 18 months there planting a church, starting with the synagogue, the Jewish church, and and speaking to them because they would have direct understanding of the scriptures that prophesied about the Messiah coming and, and bringing salvation first to the Jewish people, then to the Gentiles. So we would start in the synagogue and then move to the Gentiles, saying, this is also for you. Uh, And for many of us here, unless we have Jewish heritage, we are those Gentiles that he's preached to, right? We are the ones that have been, uh, that Israel was meant to bring salvation to. Now, the first letter that he wrote after he had left, he had gone away uh, planting more churches all throughout the Mediterranean. Um, And uh, he heard news of what was going on back in Corinth. And it was a church that thought that they had received the gospel and they were good to go and they were running ahead with it. And yet the challenge was, is that there was issues of sexual immorality and other issues Uh, that were going on and he had written a letter to them and that's the first letter which we don't have and he wrote a letter to to bring some clarity on some of those issues and to straighten some things out Um, things like marriage and faith and and laws and things like that Um, and this then uh, didn't didn't go well and how he did it. And so this prompted 1 Corinthians, uh, a larger letter meant to uh, concisely help them figure it out. They got the first letter. They didn't really understand it. And so their lives were being like uh, led off. So he wrote a second letter, a bigger letter, 1 Corinthians to help them figure it out. Unfortunately, they didn't like it. They didn't like what we have in our Bible as 1 Corinthians. They didn't like his correction to them. He didn't like his clarifications. And so he planned to visit them and say, okay, let's figure this out. But it didn't go well. It didn't go well at all. They were openly rebellious to him when he got there. They didn't trust his leadership at all. And so he left humiliated and not wanting to make things worse by creating a big fight while there. He didn't want to create any more harm this led him to write another letter that he refers to as his letter of tears Uh, that was a stern letter to them about the conditions of their heart Uh, and he sent it with Titus who we see later in in our scripture we see a book named written to him and we don't have that letter either the thing is they responded well to that letter they responded well and they kicked out the main leaders in that church that were leading them against Paul and leading them to think that having all this sexual immorality and other things were okay in the church. Um, there was still a group that opposed Paul, but the main leaders that were leading that were now out of leadership and, and out of the community. Uh, and then, then, let's see, where was I here? Uh, and how he was caught, he called them higher Uh, and instead uh, what was happening was they were getting they were getting influenced by some quote-unquote super apostles these were probably Jewish leaders that uh, were coming across and telling the Corinthian church how great they were at what they were doing and how Paul was inferior they would speak and do things for money Paul would work on the side so that he didn't have to He didn't have to impose on anybody and so they were like listen this guy he's a hack we're the real deal and they they set themselves up as super apostles and so he writes a second letter or the fourth letter our second Corinthians to reset his credentials to reset what it looks like to actually follow Christ how do we balance living in the world but living for the kingdom of God how do we make this make sense he said he wrote to do that he wrote to uh, remind them of the aid that they had promised to send to Israel because Israel was in a really hard time with both famine and persecution uh, and also to expose these quote-unquote super apostles for the imposters that they really were now for the heart of the church in Corinth uh, now stopping there for a second when I was in my treatment for, uh, for going through my cancer treatments, every time I went to the, the office or to the, to the hospital in, in Cornwall here to get my, my immunotherapy, didn't matter what time of day, uh, every single time I'd go there on the TV, there would always be a soap opera playing. Right? Every single time I sit down in the chair to get like my IV drip, all of a sudden, these are the days of our lives. (laughs) Some of you guys know that saying and how it sounds exactly like that, doesn't it? Right? And then all the drama pictures of all the people that were dead and then came back and then all all that stuff happened. Right? I want you to know that's what Corinth was living out. They were a drama show. They were a soap opera of activity in their lives and in the goings on of the church. And so I want you to rest assured a little bit when you you feel like you're going like, how am I living at my faith compared to what I see in the Bible and how am I supposed to live this out? When there's soap opera in your life, guess what? You fit right in with who Paul was leading. And we call him like this great apostle who had all this great theology for us to learn. Uh, He was dealing with us, right? (laughs) That's why he had to lay it out the way he did because uh, just like them, our lives can be crazy, can't they? But just like them in trying to figure out what does it look like to follow Jesus? How do I say I'm a Christian and then also have to live in this world, have to make daily decisions about what I pursue, what I don't pursue and how I make this work? Right, That's the same thing that they were caught in. It was just the Corinthian culture. It was just the culture of their day and all the trappings that would come along with it. That's what they were trying to figure out. It's the same for us. The heart for it in the church of Corinth would resolve around strengthening their resolve to live in the purity of the kingdom of heaven rather than absorbing the cultural habits around them. Because the reality was a love and a desire for the things of the world, it pulled at them and it weakened their faith. And for us, that can be reality too. So how do we grow in loving the right things and loving the wrong things less? And see, for Paul, there is a relationship between submission and suffering. holding on to a treasure that is beyond the grip of this world. A message that can offend if we desire to live our faith solely in places of comfort. You see in his follow-up letter, he compares us as followers of Christ to both jars of clay, tents, and ambassadors. Why jars of clay? Why tents and ambassadors? What connection is there between the three for us? Well, for jars of clay, that dates all the way back in uh, earlier in Scripture to Lamentations, which again, Paul would know because he was a Pharisee and knew Scripture well and knew how it would tie all together in Christ. And so where it says in Lamentations, it says, "The the precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of potter's hands. This is what he pulls into the Corinthian church and in their setting, in our understanding regarding the reality of who we are and what we hold in Christ when he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Earth and pots, jars of clay, the ordinary holds and contains something extraordinary. In our regular everyday living, what we hold onto and pour out of us should be holy gods. And there's a fragility to clay pots. They're easily cracked and chipped. So too with our lives. Life will take its toll. But the contents of what God pours into us does not diminish in value, in power, in purpose, or depth. We may be clay vessels, but what we hold Like I said in Lamentations, it's worth their weight in fine gold. We must accept the nature of the vessel that we are and beautifully allow the spirit and all that is in us to be the treasure that brings glory to God and others to him. Which is why following writing about us being Clay pots. He goes on to mention this. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So we do not lose heart. We could camp out in there all day. But I ask you this, do you feel afflicted and crushed? Do you feel perplexed to the point of despair, persecuted and forsaken, struck down and almost destroyed? I ask you in those moments, that is not the life that God has called you to live. Not saying that all those things won't happen, that the affliction and the perplexity and the persecution and being struck down, they are bound to happen. But what they cause you to go to, that's not set in stone. Because the fact that we carry the death of Christ in us so that we can also experience the life of Christ, that right there is the key. What are you grasping on and holding to? Because that changes your perspective on everything. If you're grasping to the things of this world and the ideals of this world, of what life is supposed to be like, then, then affliction and perplexity and persecution and being struck down, they are major blows because you're supposed to live a life of health and a life of wholeness and money and security and vacations and retirements and kids that don't argue and leave you and no brokenness in our families and no disease in our bodies. That's the ideal that the world sets before us, that we're going to do that and we're going to do it forever. But that's not reality. And if we keep our eyes on those things, then we're constantly going to be led to despair, led to destruction, led to being forsaken. Because that is not at all what Christ has called us to. So we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart at all. Because yes, this outer shell will waste away. This clay vessel will fall apart. The chips and cracks will eventually cause it to break completely. But that inner self, renewed day by day. That in the midst of the issues that are going on in the body and in the world around us, they are light momentary afflictions. To prepare us for an eternal weight of glory. But if our eyes are set down here, seeing the eternal weight of glory that's set before us is not something that's even on our radar. It's not something that we see attainable. It's not something that we keep our focus on because instead we're focused on, but I want to feel good right now. I just want everything done with right now. I want it right now, and if I can't get it right now, my heart is in despair. Paul's perspective on the challenges he faces in life, it's often so different from ours. There's a reality that he grasped that we can sometimes lose sight of. Because when we love the right things, it leaves little room for the wrong things. But conversely, when we love the wrong things, it leaves little room for the right things. And again, wrong doesn't exclusively mean sinful. It means that our affections are disordered. We're keeping our eyes too low based instead of on things above. And when we keep them on things that are too low, it often leads us to sin. It leads us into temptation, into to choosing something less than what God has for us. The desire for there to be no worries for the rest of our days. A philosophy. We may not admit that we live in the Lion King. We may not admit that we live in that story, but we often choose that path, don't we? I want no worries for the rest of my days. I don't want to, have to worry about the difficulties of life. I don't want to worry about earning a paycheck that, that puts food on my table. I don't want to worry. I don't want the worries of those things. I don't mind working, but I don't want to worry. Do I have enough? Do I have enough for today and then my tomorrows? Do I have enough for all these things? I don't want to have the stress of all that. I just want no worries. And what does that cause us to do? It causes us to. Lower our gaze and choose things and go after things, they don't, they don't end up helping in the long run. They're shortcuts that only lead to more despair, to more perplexity, to more affliction. The trap that we get caught up in is chasing the dream and illusion of our culture, prosperity and happiness. And it leaves us unable to relate to Paul there. The truth that is essential for us to hold on is this, that the gospel is not a sin management program. It is a life transformation process. We don't just bare knuckle it, hold on, hoping that we get through and just make our way through like that. It's a transformation process day by day that brings us closer to what God has for us, it's allowing the Holy Spirit to inspire greater affection for Him and His things. But I want you to know that comes through challenge, through suffering, through overcoming. It doesn't come when we just say, God, I want things your way, and He goes, Let me clear the way for you. He says, Tackle that hill. Climb that hill, go through that valley. And in the midst of that, you're going to find exactly what you're looking for. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This body that we have, it's just a tent. It's just a temporary tent. Whereas God has something so much more in store for us. Tents in the Old Testament were carriers of the presence of God. In 2 Corinthians, Paul refers to our physical bodies as that tent, that carrier of the Holy Spirit of God. It's jars of clay. They're humble. They're breakable. They're holders of something. Tense, they're temporary, they're weather-beaten. These ordinary, weak vessels, they hold and house the treasure of all treasures. But loving, temporary, earthly things, they crowd out the room for our eternal things. And God isn't anti-joy. He's not even anti-stuff or anti-comfort. He's not against those things. Life is to be lived and enjoyed. God is anti all other gods in our lives. All other idols in our lives. Anytime we go, when I reach this level, then I'm set. When I do this, then I'm set. When I have this freedom and flexibility, then I'm set. Those become idols in our lives, they become gods in our lives that we're seeking to go after instead of God. So when trials, tests, and persecution come, it reveals where our dependency is. Is it on our possessions, our skills, our attachments, or is it on God? It reveals if we've fallen in love or become too dependent or formed our lives around temporary earthly things. And I know so many of you, you've felt these tests and trials where we can feel that tug in our heart where we're like, what do I hold on to here? Do I try and strive after the comfort of these things or do I let it go and hold on to God? And we may think that God and Paul are sadists because who longs for challenge and trials in their life? Who who longs for that to be the path forward? But Paul has gotten hold of something that changes the line of his eyesight. He's looking beyond them to a reality that he knows in part and longs to see fulfilled says in verse 5 or chapter 5 verses 8 and 9 he says yes we are of good courage when we're beaten afflicted when we're struck down yes we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord we'd rather not be here on earth we'd rather be in heaven with God but we are so we are of good courage so whether we are at home or away, whether we're here with you, on Earth or with God, we make it our aim to please Him. And there lies the crux of it. Each of us lives in one of three ways, And often all three of these are competing for the same space. We're here to please ourselves. Or we're here to please others, and maybe it's a certain others, it may not be everybody, but we're pleasing others, or we're pleasing Him. A jar of clay only has so much ho- room to hold what is poured in. A tent only has so much room, our hearts and lives can easily be, be consumed by things that aren't God first. And then Paul introduces something which is good and should only invoke holy awe in us. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And by no means is Paul here advocating working for our way anywhere. he's not saying, "Hey, while you're here, you better do some really good stuff, so there you can make it." That's not really what he's advocating at all. He's simply stating that whatever you pursue here on earth, we're all going to stand before Christ to take account. What you pursue here is going to be held account with God. For Paul something so amazing has taken hold of him that he will endure anything for him. He will endure anything for what has taken hold of his heart. And if you read through the accent and into some of the epistles here, you'll read exactly what Paul has endured. How many times he's been whipped with a whip. Numerous times that would have lacerated his back and scarred his back beyond anything that we can imagine. How many times he's been beaten, stoned and left for dead, shipwrecked, arrested, all sorts of things. His life is one calamity after another with seemingly no breaks. The only breaks he gets is, is to be healed up enough to be beaten again. That's the life that he is continually living. But his eyes aren't on those things his eyes are set so much higher because something so amazing has taken hold of him can we say the same that something so amazing has taken hold of our heart that it consumes us what has taken hold of our heart what has taken hold that taken over us that we we look to the right or to the left we keep our eyes solely on that prize that we run after it is to be only Christ in him alone he continues he says therefore knowing the fear of the Lord knowing that either way I stand before God in judgment whether I like it or not I stand in God so knowing the fear of the Lord we persuade others But what we are is known to God. And I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance. Those super apostles who came in nice clothes and said, listen, look at me. I'm obviously successful at what I do. You want to listen to me and not this, this ragtag Paul guy who's making tents and... And always getting beat up they boast of outward appearance but what I boast of is so much deeper because it's not even mine it's Christ in Christ alone they boast about what the outward appearance and not what is in the heart for if we are beside ourselves it is for God meaning if if we're a little loopy it's because of God but if we're in our right mind it is for you We're bringing clarity to the situation of the world that we live in, of the desires of the flesh and the desires of the kingdom. And we're going to speak clearly so that you can know. For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. we regard him thus no longer because one has died for all. Because in this world of mess, because of that judgment that we're all going to face and because we all fall short, none of our works are good enough to give us a passing grade, but one has died for all so that we can all have life in him. And this brings us to our third and final comparison. There's tents, there's, there's j- jars of clay, and then there's ambassadors. After rooting everything in the exclusive finished work of Jesus on the cross, and in an empty tomb, he writes to the church this. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Christ died for all and all are dead in him so that we can have life in him the old has passed away behold the new has come we no longer need to keep our eyes on the things of this world because something new has grasped our hearts all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us so we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's so powerful. was this scripture, this is the scripture that lit in my heart so brightly 20, 30 some odd years ago, that brought me, that called me into ministry. The call to be an ambassador, that I was called to be an ambassador and to bring a ministry of reconciliation to others. I could not let it go. I could not reconcile how God would choose to use me, that I am his ambassador to bring the good news. That my life, how I live, how I walk, way I talk, the gospel that I give is, is his choice of making his appeal to men through me. I could not let it go. Because in Christ, we move from old to new creation. In Christ, we move from reconciled to ministers of reconciliation. In Christ, we are more, we move from sinful. To the righteousness of God. No wonder Paul had his eyes set on something else. No wonder he went from persecuting and killing Christians to having God come to him and say, Why are you doing this to me? What a 180 of his life to be then. To so know he now is a minister of reconciliation. I tell you today, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter how evil you think your heart may have been or is, God's call for you is to be reconciled to him. And he will exchange the death that's in our hearts for life in him, the sinful nature of us for the righteousness of God. As ministers of reconciliation, Jesus removes our trespasses and entrusts to us the message of reconciliation. He deliberately chooses to make his appeal to the lost and broken through us, ambassadors of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, we carry his authority his mark and his message yet just like Jesus we carry it not in prestige not in high places and palaces and not in the finest wardrobes but in clay vessels and in tents and if it's good enough for him it should be good enough for us the how we live out our Christian walk If we look like Jesus with no place to lay our head and no money in our bank account, that should be okay. If it's good enough for the Son of God, it should be good enough for us because we know our Father. We know that we are kept in Him. Good ambassadors, they represent to the best of their ability the one that is greater than themselves who sent them jars of clay are holders meant to be filled and lovingly poured out, pouring out the right things. And tents, their homes meant to be filled with loving the right things. And ambassadors are human representatives sent with a message of loving the right things. And we think of the term reconciliation or reconcile and accounting. It means to, to make one account consistent with another. To reconcile any differences between the two accounts. And God in his love through Jesus' death and resurrection has given us the ability to share in that death so that we too may have life. He has made our account consistent with his what was a deficit in our life has now been filled with the fullness of his. So in Paul's letter, God is imploring to us on earth to be reconciled to God, to be filled with a love of good things, to not be afraid to let him rightly order our affections, even if it's through suffering. More so, because it will probably come through suffering. It'll probably come through him exposing the conditions of our hearts where we have to choose. Do I go after the things of this world or do I let God sustain me in the midst of what I'm going through? Even if he never heals me, provides for me, makes a way for me, even if I travail through this, will I hold on to him? I hope you grasp from this today and not let go of is this, that number one, none of us will escape judgment, the ultimate reconciliation. All of us one day will face it. Number two, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Our choice on what to choose is now. When we stand before him on that final judgment, there is no choice. There is only reconciliation. There is only a standing and measuring of the accounts. Our time is now to choose salvation. Number three, every one of us is fatigued by ambassadors who mostly represent themselves while claiming the name of Christ. can be so tiresome when people live that way but number four every one of us fatigues ourselves and others when we fail to let God refine us when we become those things to others when we speak of a Christ that looks like this and then we willfully act in ways that are exactly the opposite of what Christ has called us to number five Each of us is implored to be reconciled, to make our accounts consistent through confession and repentance. So we find ourselves in tremendous love for the wrong things, what do we do? Resist trying to fix it, the discrepancy yourself, just trying to be better. Instead, remember, Paul says, when he says, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Find yourself in him. Find yourself in his love, in his word, and in his way through prayer find yourself in Christ because every action of our own in our own strength to try and get there falls short. But in Christ, we are the righteousness of God. And when we're in Christ, when our eyes are fixed on him and not things here, the author and the perfecter of your faith, he will know what to do. He will lead you. He will guide you so that you become a lover of right things. Let's pray. God, we just thank you. We thank you for loving us when we are far from you. We thank you that even when we are drawn to, to, Go with the waves of the world, when we, we see the things of this world and we pursue them, and not all of it's wrong, but when it becomes the center of our heart and our lives, when it becomes our focus, and you're an afterthought, God, we've got everything twisted around and backwards. So God, help us to love the right things more. God, we give you permission to do what you need to do in our lives, to refine us, to bring us to full dependency on you, to bring us to places of choice where we know we can't go the way of the world any longer but need to go with you. God, help us to have eyes like Paul where we can see the trials the problems of this world, the things that we're going to go through, we can see them and we can count it all joy because our eyes aren't set on earthly pleasure, but our eyes are set on you. We trust you in it all. God, I just pray if there's anyone here today they've yet to believe and put their their faith in you, God that they would know that today is a day of favor and today is a day of salvation. Today is a beautiful day to put their faith and trust in you and begin to follow you. To exchange a heart of stone for a heart of love. Pray this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.